Verse 1 says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, before the will of God. Oh, funny. I just deleted part of my message. <laughs> That's okay. I know where I'm going to go. Just the first few paragraphs. I've never done that before. That's a new one, iPad. How'd you do that to me? Um, on Friday, I had uh, Gus Giannakis come over to our place and we were working in the basement of our house doing some wiring. And Thursday night, the night before, he called me and he said, hey, should I have my mom make lunch for us tomorrow? Now, if you knew Georgia Giannakis, you never turn up that, you never turn down that opportunity. And so I was feeling kind of guilty. So I said, well, Gus, you know, you're coming. We're doing a little tweaking at my place. Uh, I was going to have my wife make us a nice lunch. But, you know, if your mom really wants to make lunch for us, uh, twist my rubber arm, we can go. And he says, well, why don't you bring Lisa? So we were in. We headed over to Georgia's and, uh, you know, praise God. What can I say? <laughs> we had a great time and she's such a sweet lady. And she made us Greek food. We had, you know, those little Greek meatballs and the roasted potatoes and the Greek salad and just... The whole nine works, and my wife was sitting there. They, you know, Gus was talking about how when Tammy used to live there, she would ask, how do you make this? How do you make this? And so Lisa was asking, how do you make this? And oregano, olive oil, all this stuff. And, and so after lunch, we ended up in the backyard, and she was showing us her garden. And um, Lisa and I like to eat figs, and she had a couple fig trees, and so we were yapping about fig trees. And she says, here, I've, I've got some that I've started. And she gave us a little fig tree. And then she gave me this spiel about loving the plant. <laughs> you ever found that about plants? You know, that as you love them and you care for them and nurture them, that they, they seem to actually respond to it, you know? And so she just gave me this spiel, this older Greek woman about caring for plants and loving them and how it will grow to be healthy and grow strong. And I, I was just thinking about how that applies to this text this morning, where we're going. See, as followers of Jesus Christ, something similar needs to happen with how we cultivate our own minds and this garden where we want God to work. I, I heard a term recently at our pastor's conference that stuck with me. One of the pastors was talking quite a bit in his message about mental hygiene. And I thought, wow, I've never heard that statement before. I like that. You know, we talk about oral hygiene and different things, but mental hygiene, the taking care of your mind. And, you know, we know from the scripture that the word of God teaches us is that the word is like dental floss for your mind, so to speak. It brings mental hygiene. And so when we are to develop and, and have mental hygiene, develop biblical thinking and a biblical worldview, we need to have our minds washed with the word of God. And as we grasp the word of God with increasing measure, our mental hygiene improves our outlook on life changes. We begin to see that in all things, God is at work for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes as he promises. You know, it's been said, outlook determines outcome. And a follower of Jesus Christ is called to have right attitudes so that he can live the right kind of life. Now in this chapter, Peter's going to talk about the, the type of attitude we should arm our mind with. I, I kind of, 
This book, for, we've been away from 1 Peter for a little while, but man, I find his themes tough. And he doesn't get any easier here. You know, we're talking about submission. We've been talking about authority. We've been talking about suffering. And now he's going to talk about the kind of mind that we should have as we pursue Jesus Christ. And I, I don't think it's totally easy, but I think it's really powerful. And so naturally, as he begins to jump into this topic of talking about the mind, who does he first point us to? Sunday school answer, Jesus. That's right. He's going to point us to Jesus Christ because that is where our framework and our foundation always starts. We're, it's rooted in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter says this about Jesus. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. And it just made me think, what was the life attitude and mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ? As he did ministry, as he traveled about the Galilee and the land of Israel and worked with people and had his disciples with him and performed miracles and ministry and all these different things, what was the purpose and theme of his life that dominated everything that he did? Well, in John 5, chapter 19, Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son of God can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. See, Jesus was always about the father's business. Whatever he did, it was because the father directed him to do that. And that purpose, the direction from his father, the will of God, for his life dominated all of his thinking in everything that he did. Every relationship, every conversation, every work of the ministry, work time, leisure time. Whatever it was, that purpose dominated his life. I do what the father tells me to do. He actually translated that into a command for us. He said this, seek first the kingdom of God and all the rest will be added to you. And that was, the, wor- that was the, the pattern that Jesus lived. See, his, his, his greatest joy came in making the dwelling of his mind fixed on the eternal kingdom of our Lord. You know, I, I wish you could have tasted those meatballs. They were awesome. <laughs> I thought, just one more. Oh, just one more. Just one more. I don't know how many times I did the just one more move. You know, Georgia, Georgia made those. But, the, but then there was the olives. I don't know what it was about the olives. They just were like way better than usual. Maybe it was the context of their listening to her accent as we're talking and eating. I don't know what it was, but they were really good. And, you know, there's something about eating good food that just seems to be one of the most gratifying things in life. Don't you agree? Men know this, okay? There's two things that gratify us. One is food. The other one, you know what that is. Let me tell you about Jesus. Because it's okay. You guys are a little slow. Let me tell you about Jesus. You know, I have no doubt that he loved good food just like you and me. But firstly and, and foremost, he found his deepest gratification in the pursuit of eternal things. The stomach or any of the, of the desires of the flesh did not exercise authority over him. They did not exercise a sovereignty over the person of Jesus. 
His deepest gratification was in the pursuit of eternal things. His stomach and his flesh were made subordinate to the things of the spirit. He gave priority to the things spiritual. He fixed his eyes, not on the temporary, but on the unseen. And he lived from that point of view. That was the mind of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Peter's taught, he's going to go into this conversation about suffering. And it's kind of interesting because really when a mind gets set on eternal things and it says, I'm going to view life from this eternal perspective and I'm going to live from this eternal plane, it necessitates suffering. When a mind is set on eternal things, it necessitates suffering. And this is why I find this conversation that Peter's having really hard. You know, like for weeks I've been out of Peter and I've been dreading coming to this chapter because I'm like, I don't like this. This is, this makes me uncomfortable. I don't like what this says about my flesh that when I set my mind on eternal things, it's necessary that I suffer. This is a mature conversation that Peter is having. This isn't wimpy Christianity that he's talking about. This is the real goods. Just like Jesus said, Jesus, see, Jesus said, you must pick up your cross and deny yourself and follow me. And so for us to choose eternal things over temporary things, that I, means this, that I must put down the immediate and I must choose to live for something that's remote, something that's far off, something that's in the distance, something that I cannot see with my physical eyes. When I choose to live for eternal things, it it demands the crucifixion of my flesh. See, Jesus suffered in his flesh, and Peter's not even talking about the cross. Jesus suffered in his flesh the whole way through his whole life because he chose to subordinate the flesh to things spiritual. Does that make sense? He flipped the order. And so the flesh had to suffer all the time because he said, no stomach, you're set aside. No desire of the flesh, you're set aside. No, spiritual first, eternal things first. I mean, you just read about Jesus Christ in the gospel. Other alternatives were presented to him. You know, Satan came and he tempted him. Turn the stone into bread, cast yourself. Satan tried to sell Jesus the easy way tempted him to choose not the will of God, but to provide for himself. And Jesus rejected those desires of the flesh. He rejected those temptations from Satan. And in in doing so, he suffered for the purpose of eternal things and for the purpose of God's will and the kingdom of God. I mean, get this in your mind for a second. I mean, it blows me away. But Jesus preferred the shedding of his blood over the desires of his flesh. Remember in Gethsemane? God, not my, if any other way, God, but not my will be done, but yours. He chose to shed his blood than feed the desire of his flesh. That's tough, isn't it? When you think about it, you know, it's, it's not so easy because sometimes my, you know, hardest Decision of the day seems to be, you know, honey nut Cheerios or, you know, toast with peanut butter. You know, pants or shorts, flip-flops or shoes. You know, like, 
I live for all sorts of silly things. You know, should I go to bed or should I watch some more TV? You know, should I lie here a little longer this morning or should I get up and spend time with the Lord? And all of these thoughts are cruising in our heads all the time, trying to direct us to please the appetites of the flesh and of our body. My thoughts often like you are ruled by the desires of my flesh. But as Peter points us to Jesus, we see this about Jesus, that Jesus preferred to shed his blood over the desire of his flesh. And I think to myself, why? You know, because you want to die? Who wants to die? Because he's some sort of, our savior was some sort of sadistic nut who found pleasure in suffering? And I would say no. Jesus preferred the shedding of his blood over the desires of his flesh because he lived a life wanting to please his father in heaven. He desired first to seek the kingdom. He desired to do nothing of his own accord. He fixed his mind and his thoughts on spiritual things. Christ suffered in the flesh. And Peter says this in verse 1. Now, you should arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Wow, that's tough, isn't it? You know, one night this week, we, we dropped Joan off at baseball practice. It was, actually, it was Thursday night. We thought, oh, what are we going to do? Hey, let's, let's go to Dougal Park. And so we took the two little ones, and we went to Dougal Park with the dog. And we were just hanging out. And as we were, we'd just gotten into the park, a couple of vehicles pulled up, and hatchbacks went up. And these guys threw out like four or five bags of hockey gear into the field. I thought, oh, this will be interesting. Let's see what's going to happen. Gibsons, you never know what you're going to get. So, um, you know, as they began to unload these hockey bags, I saw that they had all this medieval armor and equipment. And these guys began to dress up. And I thought, my gosh, you would not catch me dead in public <laughs> dressed like that. But they, they geared up in their medieval gear, and there was one guy, he was like the Padawan apprentice, and it took him about 30 or 40 minutes to get all this gear on. I was kind of distracted as we're hanging out, and I'm watching, and he's tightening things on his elbows. And by the time he was all done, he had, you know, these shin pad things and hip protectors and a chest protector and arm sleeves and this big metal helmet, and uh, which he just had sitting on the side when we had left. And... Uh, you know, he covered himself all up and he got himself ready to go into battle. You know, and then they pulled out these big sword things. I mean, they weren't swords, but they were big wooden sticks like this. And I thought, these guys are going to beat the tar out of one another. We just saw them practicing and warming up. But they got ready to take a beating as they uh, dressed in this stuff. And I thought to myself, as these guys prepared to play war, I thought, man, you guys got to get a life. <laughs> <laughs> they prepared to fight though. They prepared to potentially suffer for the future hope of victory. That's what war is about. You know, when a man goes to war, he has to decide that he is prepared to potentially suffer for the hope of victory. If a man wants to fight for something great, then he has to be prepared to suffer. And I just think when an individual chooses to go to war, you know, I think I was thinking about soldiers at some point in time, you sit down and you just have to evaluate what you're doing and weigh the cost. 
and determine, wait a minute, I might lose my life in this situation. And a person in that spot has to, has to just weigh the value of his life and determine is the victory and what's coming to me in the future worth the cost that I might have to give. And you know, if in the face of, of battle, a, a soldier simply gets his thoughts focused on the flesh, you know what kind of soldier he is. He's going to be a dead one. <laughs> When he begins to focus on the appetite of the stomach or a desire for ease or comfort or whatever it is, his will will be easily crumbled and broken and shaken and he will put himself in a dangerous spot. And as we see the mind of Christ, his preference was this. To have a predominant focus on the eternal a predominant focus on the eternal. And Peter says, you need to arm yourself. It's like those guys in Dougal Park who loaded up the armor, put on the same attitude that Christ had in regards to eternal and spiritual things. And Peter explained why they should prepare themselves for this. He says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. See, see a commitment to suffer is evidence that you're breaking you're breaking the relationship with the life of sin. You know, we've been set free from sin. Our sins are forgiven. Our sins are nailed to the cross. Jesus' blood was shed for our sin. But there is still, as we know, a breaking that needs to happen with the life of sin. It's this, it's this lifelong battle where we're, we're dealing with issues and the things that the Lord is causing to surface and come forward and whatever it might be. And there needs to be a breaking with that life of sin. And to do that, you have to be willing to suffer. You have to be willing to say, no flesh, you come second. And the point here that Peter is making is not that believers who suffer have attained some state of sinless perfection. As if they don't, they don't sin at all after suffering. But Peter is emphasizing that those who commit themselves and are willing to, to suffer, those who are willing to endure scorn, those who are willing to endure mockery for their faith, show that they have triumphed over sin and they have broken off that relationship with sin. They've broken off with sin because they have ceased to participate in you know, lawless activities and the things that this world participates in and they're willing to even endure criticism or maligning or whatever it might be to follow Jesus Christ and to direct their lives towards spiritual things. See, the commitment to suffer, this arming yourself with the mind of Christ, reveals a passion for living uh, the Christian life that the world doesn't really understand. And Peter's going to begin to get into that. But he says, look at verse 2 again. He says, so as to live the rest, of the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Isn't that a challenge, man? That is tough to think about not living for human passions, but for the will of God. You know, does this temporary life define for you the boundaries of what you're willing to do for God? It certainly does for me. And I, I want to just challenge you from this text. Cast your bread on the waters. 
Launch out into new things for Jesus Christ. Don't live for the lusts of your flesh, but live for the will of God. Let the kingdom of God and spiritual things control all the aspects and events of your life. Instead of asking why God, begin to, you, you know, asking why God in that self-absorbed Christian life, begin to ask what for God, what is this for God? What are you doing, God? How can I partner with you, Lord? You know, it's been said, and I like this. We do not live as Christians. We do not live on expectations or sorry, explanations. We live on promises. We do not live on explanations. We live on promises. That's what it means to walk by faith, to take hold of the promises of God and sink your teeth into them. I don't understand, but God, I'm hanging on to what you've said. My life appears to be a mess. I'm hanging on to your word. My marriage is in trouble. My health is not good. I don't know why this is happening, but in the face of these things, I'm going to ask what for God? How can I follow you in faith? I know that you love me. I know that. You work together in all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes. God, I will arm my mind with the attitude of faith. Instead of living self-centered and with that flesh focus, I will set my mind on eternal things like Jesus Christ did and I will trust your word and I will rest in the hope of eternity. And though like Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Makes me think of Abraham. Though God called him to sacrifice his son, he took hope in the fact that God could resurrect the dead. And you know, we can often meditate on the impossibility of our situation. You know, all of us have different things going on in our lives. And it's so easy to just look at that situation, that circumstance, that relationship, whatever it is, and just focus on how impossible it is. Or we can choose to meditate on the character and the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ with whom nothing is impossible. Like David, who stood in the shadow of a giant, but said to himself and to those around him, God will defend his glory, his name, and his people. I'll take him on. Like Joseph, Though living in a spot where he could have compromised himself in a desire to, to please the Lord, he set aside the desires of the flesh for spiritual things and he was thrown in jail. And yet he chose to honor God or Noah who faced the mocking of his generation and yet he did what God called him to do and he built the ark and his family was saved. The, I mean, the examples are endless from the scripture, right? We could go on and on and on about men and women from the scripture who armed themselves in their situations with an eternal mindset, looking for what God was going to do. You know, whatever your situation is, whatever you're going through, I would say this, let your heart bask in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be convinced what we sang this morning. You are good. Your love endures forever. Right from the scripture. See, your, your heart can be ruled and your mind can be ruled by different things. It can be ruled 
horizontally and a desire for pleasure or your heart and mind can be ruled vertically in a relationship with God. You can have the horizontal plane of pleasure or that vertical plane of worship. That horizontal plane of fear or the vertical plane of belief. See, our battle is not against flesh and blood, the scripture tells us. But against principalities and powers and rulers of the, of the unseen world. See, we are involved in a spiritual battle as we prayed this morning. We don't fight with physical weapons. It's not guns and fighter jets and aircraft carriers and tanks and grenades and tactical gear and all this stuff. It's all useless in the battle we're involved in. We arm ourselves, Peter says, with an attitude of the mind. And from there we enter into the fray and we're willing to lay down our lives when we take on that attitude. You know, there's an interesting story in the Old Testament um, in regards to the Syrians. Do you remember that story about when the Syrian armies came to attack Israel and they lost the battle? And they said, God, their God is a God of the mountains. And so next time we go into battle, we'll attack them in the valleys. And there, their God's not a God of the valleys. And there we'll win. You know, there's a cool spiritual picture in there for us. You know, we have to think our God is the God of the spiritual mountaintops. When life is perfect and all great and we're getting perspective, there is God with us and battle is easy. But God is also the God of the valley. He enters into our suffering and our hurt and our pain and our situations and our sorrows. And in the valley, there too, he can bring Victory, not just on the mountaintop. You know, I don't think it's always a healthy place to dwell, but there are times uh, when it's good to remember where he came from. You know, before Christ, and Peter actually takes us there. Look at verse three. He says this. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. For the time that is past suffices, that's it. What he's saying is enough with that stuff. That was for the past. Put it away. That, that time that we live like Gentiles, he's talking about being in a time of unbelief. That was a time of ignorance. When we lived in the futility of our minds, when we lived with with the passion, a, a passion to fulfill our lust, like those who don't know the Lord. You know, you read that list, and, it, and I, I really think Peter wants you to recoil, you know, kind of have a spiritual recoil when you read that list, like sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. You know, the psalmist said this. He said, uh, I thought over my ways. And I said, let my feet return to the word of God. Let my feet return to the testimonies. Let my feet return to the commands of the Lord. See, remember where you were before Christ? Consider for a moment. Consider for a moment where you were before Jesus Christ arrested your heart and mind. When you were focused on living for unseen or foreseen things. But now consider for a moment 
If you were to focus your life and your existence on living for unseen eternal things, what would happen to the world around us? What would happen to this community if we began to live that way? How would it affect the world around you? Well, Peter starts to talk about it. Look at verse 4. Talking about the Gentiles, he says, with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. You know, how is the world around us affected when we live as followers of Jesus Christ for eternity, when we arm our minds with this eternal perspective? Well, Peter tells us right here, the world gets surprised. It kind of shocks them. They're not quite sure what to do. I mean, have you had that happen? Where people are like, man, I can't figure you out. <laughs> I, I had fun with that uh, recently. I went into a situation and then I, the report back was, that person couldn't figure it out. I thought, awesome, man. I love that. I love that Jesus Christ in my life messed with their mind. Don't you love that when that happens at different times when they're like, what is with that guy? What? And I, I've heard so many testimonies from different ones in this church where people give you certain reactions at different times. And, and people aren't quite sure how to handle you. And, and maybe they think it's strange that you don't join in with them in the lunchroom at work or in the conversation, or in the lifestyle that they live, or what they do, they can't figure out why you don't. The world does this, but you don't. What's the deal? And it startles them. And they recognize something. This person's not living for human fleshly desires. They're, they're not living to just please themselves right here in the moment. And, and the world doesn't know how to, how to deal with it. You know, I was thinking, what distinguishes a Christian? How do you tell the difference between us and the world? Well, there's a couple obvious things like, you know, you hang a cross on your neck, you put a fish on the back of your car and you only listen to praise one of 6.5, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> what makes a Christ follower different? Is it the length of your hair? Is it the lack thereof your hair? <laughs> you know, is it your sour holier than thou attitude? Is it attending church? You know, if showing up, you, you know, is it, is it you're here right now this morning? Is that the only thing that makes you different from the world? You know, I would say this. If the extent of your Christianity is coming to church on Sunday morning, you are in trouble. If the extent of your Christianity is coming to this church on Sunday morning, you are in dear trouble and you need to take some time and look in the mirror. You know, I would say it's, it's probably hard to nail down the distinguishing mark of true Christian faith. But I, I, I ran into a couple sentences in my study that I really love. So let me steal them. What is the characteristic ideal of a Christian? It is the life whose secret springs are governed by the eternal. It is the life whose secret springs are governed by the eternal. Or it was said this way. It is the choice of duty before ease. Of ideas before sensations. Of truth before popularity. Of good conscience before a full purse. Of a holy God before dazzling and bewitching mammon. You know, the world looks at that kind of Christian faith with surprise. And they respond in one of two ways. The first one I would call inquisitive wonder. What's the deal, man? I want more of that. I want to hang around that person. 
I want to find out what's, and you have those kind of relationships going on in your lives, I hope, where people are inquisitively watching you. They're trying to figure it out. And hopefully as you pray for them, something will develop and ripen in their hearts and lives and it will become personal and real for them as they lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ from watching you. Or the second reaction is this, that their surprise will create an uneasiness for them. And what they'll do is they'll choose to malign you, Peter says. They'll speak spitefully. Maybe your face or for sure behind your back, they will begin to malign you because they do not know how to deal with your eternal focus. You know, it's funny when you, you just think about it, you know, when an addict gets sober because they found Christ or when a marriage is healed because two people came to Jesus Christ or, you know, you come to Christ and you decide that you're not going to live a certain way. What, what, do, what do people often conclude? Go, Man, that dude's lost his mind. <laughs> You know, they don't think it's strange when someone destroys their body with substances. They don't think it's strange when someone's ruining their home and their marriage and their kids. But find Jesus and you must have gone crazy. <laughs> Even Festus said that to Paul. Remember Festus? In, in Paul was sharing in the book of Acts his testimony. Festus, you're out of your freaking mind, man. In English. No, I'm not. I'm not out of my mind. This is real. What has happened in my heart? Peter goes on. He says this in verse five. Speaking of the unbeliever, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that, th that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. See, the unsaved person can judge you, but one day God will judge them. That's what Peter says. They'll stand before their maker and he will judge them. Now, verse six is kind of a weird verse. Let me read it to you again. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. It's, it's a weird verse. It's wordy. And you just have to keep it in its context. Remember, the context is suffering for being focused on eternal things. Having that mind of Christ. And Peter is reminding his readers of the Christians who have been martyred for their faith. Remember to whom he's writing. A church that is undergoing severe, severe, severe persecution under the Roman Empire. They're being martyred for their faith. They've been falsely judged by men. But now in the presence of God, they receive their true judgment. So when he speaks of those that are dead, it means those who are dead at the time when Peter is writing. The gospel was preached to them. They live for eternal things. And they have salvation after death. He says in verse 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things is at hand. How far is your hand from your face? It's right there. The end of all things is at hand. Jesus is coming soon. See, that is the promise of the scriptures for us. He will come for us, his church, and the scripture calls us to be ready for his coming. The consummation of the ages is at hand. You know, I encourage you to develop your conviction about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You know, today's a beautiful day. Go home this afternoon and lay on the grass and just look at the sky and think about the return of Christ. Now sit on the deck and meditate for a little while on the scriptures that's looking at the sky. Meditate on the scriptures that speak of Christ's return. See, the hope of the blessed coming of our Lord should fill us with hope. And Peter says, it's at hand. He's giving us some values by which, by which we should live with this eternal perspective. You know, I often think about 2009 when we here in Gibsons were named this most wonderful community in the world to live in under 10,000 people, whatever it was. Remember that? It doesn't get any better than this right here. Do you know that? That on the face of this earth, you live in the closest thing to paradise that there is. It's a great privilege that God has given us that we could live here. But I don't know about you, but if this is all there is, I, I have a hope for a lot more than what Gibsons can offer me. <laughs> and when we live with an expectation of Christ's return, it, 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 it affects us. It affects us. There's a new Jerusalem. There's the hope of heaven and paradise and the presence of the Lord. And so Peter says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He's saying this. Speaking again of the mind, have a sound mind. You know, let the gospel and the expectancy of the return of Christ produce in you mental hygiene. Have a healthy mind, man. Floss that thing with the hope of the gospel and the return of Christ. Yeah, I love it. What he's saying is this. The gospel will make you sane, man. Wow, imagine that. Did you know that the word of God produces sanity? I'm, it's real, man. It produces sanity. And he says self-control and, be, you know, practice self-control and sober-mindedness. It's this instruction about disciplining your thinking, disciplining your emotions. Doesn't our minds run off to strange places sometimes? You ever just let your mind go? Just let it go wherever it wants to go. And it's like, Wow, I could have never dreamed that up. How did my mind navigate all those things and come to that conclusion? Why did I let it go there? Why did I let my mind take off there and produce that action? You know, your, your mind will just go to spots you never could have imagined. And the need is, is that we as followers of Jesus Christ are to discipline the mind. We don't let our minds drift wherever they want to go. He says, he's, he's saying this, I mean, to me, it's this picture that when you let your mind go wherever it wants to go, it's like your emotions become intoxicated. You know, you ever get totally irrational about different things because you've let your mind take off? It's like your emotions become intoxicated and the mind will go to whatever the flesh is desiring and you'll lose your inhibition like a drunk. You'll lose your inhibition and you'll give yourself over to sin because you you let your mind go and you let it wander there. You know, if you let your mind go to places that you never would have dreamed of, you know, eventually maybe your actions will follow taking you to places you never would have dreamed of. And so Peter says, we're to be sober minded and self-controlled. 
And, and to me, one of the most effective ways to be sound in your mind is to think on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. To focus and meditate and think on his coming. To look in the sky with wonder. Say, today, Lord, this is today. Think on his return. Think on his coming. Meditate on the scriptures and the prophecies of the second coming. And you will become sober from the intoxications of your mind that has allowed you to freely roam. You know, when I think on the coming of the Lord, different, man, the Lord's coming. I don't need to panic. <laughs> King Jesus is coming for his church. I'm not going to give my life over to the things of corruption. Jesus is coming. I'm not going to live for sin. And as you focus on his return, it will birth in your heart, Peter says, a desire to pray. When you're sober-minded and self-controlled, your prayers won't be hindered. It'll just begin to flow out. As you think on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not cool. Verse 8, he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. What a great verse. What a great verse. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly. Faith, hope, and love. Scripture says the greatest of these is love. Above all, first place goes to love. Gets the ribbon. I want to encourage you. Make your love for people more intense. Stretch back the walls of how you define your family. Let me ask you something. Has, has God put someone in your heart whom he wants you to love just like they're a member of your own family? Stretch back the walls and love and include a neighbor like they're a family member. Push back the walls and love a stranger. Well, wait a minute. Push them back and love your enemies. Do you have enemies? Could you love that person for the sake of Jesus Christ? See, the quality of love is determined by the inclusiveness of its nature, that it brings others in. And it covers a multitude of sins. Love is willing to forgive. Love is even willing, dare I say, to forget. <laughs> love doesn't hint about past failures. You know, if... if there's someone in your life who you like to remind yourself about their past failures. Let me remind you, love doesn't do that. Love, you know, I, we've got this puppy at home. I take her face. Last night, pooped in the laundry room. My wife took her face and she rubbed it in there. Well, not rubbed it in, but, you know, made her sniff it and then into the kennel to train her. But love doesn't, love doesn't do that. We don't take people's faces and rub it in there. And discipline them. You think about Jesus. The publicans and the sinners drew near to him. Drew near to him. And love covered their sins. You know there was a woman who was a sinner. And she came weeping. And she clenched his feet. And love covered her sin. The son of man came to seek and save that which is lost. And his love will cover your sin. Look to Jesus and live. Look and live. You know, I'll tell you about Jesus. He never made me grovel. He never rubbed my face in my sin. He never chided me or scolded me. 
He never reminds me of my past failures and sins. He just loves me. Besides, I don't need him to remind me of my sin. Sin innately produces death. Sin leaves the residue of regret. Sin leaves the residue of pain and shame. And when those feelings come, whether they be from Satan or myself or someone else, I just need to look to Jesus and remember he nailed it to the cross and he shed his blood for my sin. I remember his love. I think on his blood and I revel in the fact that it washes and cleanses me and you. See, love covers a multitude of sins. And what a wonderful thing that God calls us to practice and extend to others the love that was extended to us in Jesus Christ. Remember Noah? A time he got drunk, uncovered himself, laid naked in his tent. His kid went in there, went out and began spreading the story. Went and told his brothers, hey, dad's in there, man. Loaded, naked. His two sons went in there and they backed into that tent, the scripture says, with a covering and they laid it over their father. They covered his shame and they covered his sin. And we are called to be people like that. Love covers over. It forgives forgives the sin of others as Christ forgave us. And so Peter says in verse 9, show hospitality one another without grumbling. You know, one of the most brilliant, one of the most powerful ways to show love is through hospitality. Isn't it? If people into your home to sit around the dinner table and break bread and to drink together. Where there is love, there you should find hospitality. There you should find sitting around. That was like Jesus' thing, man. So you get to feed those desires of the flesh. Just eternally motivated. And he says, do so without grumbling. And then we'll just, we'll just wrap up here. We'll read a couple of verses. He says, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Real simple, isn't it? God says, whatever gifts you have recognize this, they are from God and they are to be used with an attitude of love for the glory of God. You know, God's uniquely, uniquely gifted all of us, individuals, different people brought us together here into this body, this family. And whatever our gifts are, we're to use them to serve the kingdom of God. I'm reminded of what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Everything, all things are about the glory of God. You know, I, I, as I was looking at this, I just, I just wanted to call this message, man up, be prepared. Man up, man. Put on the mind that is prepared to live for eternal things, that mind of Christ. Be prepared for the coming of the Lord. And as you do, the result will be love. People won't know how to respond. They'll be surprised and they'll be drawn to Jesus Christ. Let's pray this morning.